Do you want more energy, better sleep, and better health? Who wouldn't? Get a free Scalar Light no obligation 15-day trial at scalarlight.com. Please note that all information and content on UK Health Radio and our blog are provided by the authors, producers, and companies themselves and is only intended as additional information to your general knowledge and does not substitute professional medical advice or treatment. So please do not delay or disregard any medical advice received due to information gathered on the UK Health Radio. Health Radio, real feel-good radio. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost. And each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders and clinicians who are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself, and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. There is a lot to get through on today's show, so I'm going to start off by letting everybody know that the UK Health Radio Awards are now live and open for voting on UKHealthRadio.com. If you have a favorite health product or a favorite health tech professional, go to UKHealthRadio.com, click on the awards tab and vote for your favorite from the short list that are in each category. So all of the people and brands there have been selected by the presenters um, on the station as people who have made a huge impact in, in people's lives over the last 12 months. So yes, if you want to get your vote in, go to UKHealthRadio.com now and the results will be announced in August. Um, then, as, as always, I'd like to remind everyone to follow the show on the socials. It's at uh, Health Tech Hour and follow the station. It's at UK Health Radio just to stay on top of all of the great content that's coming up on the show. So that's all of the admin out the way. What, let's actually start the, start the show. So today's show sees us return to an area that's personally close to my heart because it's an area where our company, PocDoc, is active, and that's community-based remote monitoring and diagnosis. So, you know, that's quite a mouthful, but in short, it's the ability to deliver clinical-level assessment of key health markers in the home or in the community or in care homes, effectively anywhere outside of the GP surgery or hospital, uh, and to allow clinicians, doctors, to care for people remotely. Obviously, the need for remote solutions has been accelerated by the pandemic, but um, Dr. Elena Naidanova, who is CEO and founder of Febris, that's F-E-E-B-R-I-S, were already making waves in this space before then. 
Febris is one of the leaders in community remote monitoring. It's being used extensively throughout the NHS. They've won numerous awards for their technology and their approach. Their system, the Fibra system, allows someone to perform a full health checkup on themselves or someone else, including pulse, breathing rate, blood pressure, and O2, blood um, um, oximeter. And for those results to be shared in real time with clinicians and for those clinicians to determine in real time if action is needed. Febris are also an alumni on the NHS Digital Accelerator like POCDOC, and they've received the Children's Award for their work in helping children in India get access to healthcare. So it's a pleasure to get Alina on the show. Alina, how are you? Welcome to the show. Good. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. Good. Well, look, as, as everyone that comes on the show, I kind of ask them, what's it been like over the last 13 or 14 months? What's the mood in the camp right now? What, what's kind of going on on the ground at Fibris? <laughs> yeah, that's the, it's a very good question. Um, it's been mad. I think most people would probably say that, especially if you work in the, in the healthcare space. I mean, we're, we're not healthcare providers. I can't even imagine what that's been, uh, you know, for the, for the frontline workers, but on our end, uh, we explicitly focused on care homes and providing our technology in care and nursing homes across the country um, and working very closely with the NHS and social, social care to really deliver a very transformed model uh, for manage, managing the health of elderly people. Um, mm. So it's been nonstop, I guess, mixed emotions of a lot of hard work, a lot of gratification uh, from being able to, to support our NHS partners, uh, but also, you know, a lot of, a lot of struggle <laughs> of trying yeah. to find the right ways of, of transforming healthcare. Okay, yeah, and well, we can go into it because I know that you guys have obviously made huge strides over the last 13 to 14 months, but I don't want to underplay the fact that you guys were already doing this, you know, before the pandemic came around, you know, you were sort of visionaries in the remote monitoring space, which we'll, which we'll get into. Um, but I think it's kind of easy to sort of just assume that people have jumped on the bandwagon, but you were, you were, you were one of the early, early people to, to start pushing this type of technology. So um, as regular listeners know, the show is split into three parts. The first part is an origins part, really about how you came to be, you know, on your journey to, to changing the world of health tech. The middle part is all around all of the great stuff that you're doing right now in the world of health tech at Fibris. And then if we get to it, if we have enough time, it's a, a discussion about what the future holds and whether there's any other topics of the day that we want to talk about. So let's let's kick off. So Alina, you you were into health tech at a relatively early age. Um, you know, I think you, you studied biomedical engineering at university. So was it always an interest? Did you always know that you would end up on this pathway or what was how did you sort of start? Yeah, I was always fascinated by the opportunity to kind of bridge the innovation that technology can bring about and the real world impact uh, that you can have in healthcare. Um, so that's why I trained in biomedical engineering. And initially, I was working within um, kind of the imaging space, developing machine learning or AI algorithms for um, you know, personalizing um, therapy in that space. But I, I always had a fascination with population health and global health in particular. So that took me to the World Health Organization and the medical device group there, where I was very fortunate to um, be given a project that I knew nothing about um, called Childhood Pneumonia. Uh, 
Okay. Um, and at the time, I hadn't realized that it's the number one killer of children under five. Um, pneumonia is. Pneumonia is, yeah. Oh. It actually kills more than um, HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. In the under fives? In the under fives. Wow, that's incredible. It is absolutely shocking. It's still shocking today. It, it's just not, you know, it's not the thing you hear on the news no. uh, on a daily basis. And back uh, when I was doing this work, it was responsible for nearly 1 million children's deaths every year. Oh, um, wow. That's, that's which really is high. A very, very tragic statistic. Uh, but also for me, it became you know, a first hand experience because I was also very fortunate to do a lot of field work um, in India in, in urban slums. Um, and really see what it means for a mother to have a very sick child and not have the access to healthcare to to actually be able to intervene early and turn what's a treatable disease um, into um, kind of a preventive death. Um, so yeah, for, for me that was um, kind of quite transformational for my journey, and I, I realized that you know it's one disease, but it's very emblematic um, for what's really kind of wrong in, in our healthcare delivery these days or what's missing in our healthcare delivery these days, the, the ability to detect disease early on um, and avoid a lot of suffering and mortality. Okay. And so did you, when you kind of started off on the biomedical course, because it's, it's one of those course titles that I'm sure most people may have heard of it, but they might not necessarily know what's actually involved in it. So why did you end up doing biomedical engineering and not something else in the healthcare space? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I had a very kind of mixed educational experience. I um, actually trained in maths and physics um, and um, had the opportunity to work on various kind of biomedical engineering projects with at the time was more around uh, designing hardware um, and hardware techniques for improving various diagnostic problems. Um, and over the years that then uh, kind of evolved and matured into how can we use advancements such as machine learning into, into delivering uh, better healthcare. So the reason why I ended up in this space is because I, I always felt like an innovator. Um, I, I always was fascinated by what is the next best way of solving this problem, mm. um, both studying the problem, but also coming up with various opportunities to, to address it. Okay. And um, after your work with the WHO, did you stay in, in NGOs in, in the charity space or, or what happened after that? Um, so, yeah, I continued working on various kind of consulting projects on the innovation front uh, and a lot of them associated with, uh, with NGOs. Uh, but also I uh, moved back to Oxford um, and did a PhD specifically um, focusing on designing machine learning for healthcare innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really wanted to prove to myself that we can use uh, machine learning to diagnose uh, pneumonia in community settings. Okay. Um, so I spent uh, four or five years in academia, uh, really digging deep into how do we do this in practice? How do we run the clinical studies to validate um, the algorithms? How do we develop the algorithms themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And why were you so interested? I'm asking generalized, but what, why were you so interested or convinced that machine learning could help better diagnose childhood pneumonia? Mm, it's a very good question. Uh, for two reasons. One is the complexity of the disease means that there isn't a single device you can give to a patient or to a clinical worker to diagnose it. Is there um, a, um, of interest, is there a diagnostic test or is it a pathology lab only route? So the, 
the gold standard diagnosis would be an x-ray and a blood test. Oh, really? Okay. Which obviously requires sophisticated hospital infrastructure that's inaccessible yeah. for a lot of people. Is it, um, um, is it a and, blood test and an x-ray or can you do one or the other? It's, a, it's an and. Ideally, it's both. Wow. Ideally, it's both. That's a big bar. That's a high bar. It's a very high bar. Uh, but also the, the journey to that bar involves a well-trained primary care physician. Uh, it could involve a pulmonologist that uses a stethoscope to listen to the chest and identify various sounds. Um, so a multitude of very highly trained professionals and very advanced technology to reach a diagnosis, okay. which in low resource settings um, is close to impossible uh, because you, don't, you simply don't have access to all these people and all, yeah. all these technologies. Um, and the the other thing that, that's always been fascinating to me is the need to rethink delivery models, um, especially in emerging markets. Um, so specifically at the time uh, I was working in India and there was, and still is, a very kind of fast-growing workforce of community healthcare workers. Okay. So people that have minimal training, um, formal training, that is um, an education, but who are very well versed in conducting um, kind of community processes like um, documenting vaccination levels or delivering education to prospective mothers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that workforce can be very, very powerful. They see these patients on a daily basis, but currently have very limited tools of what they can actually use to deliver uh, any sort of healthcare intervention okay. or interaction. So for me, it was basically a mixture of the two, thinking about if, if there is anything that I would like machine learning and AI to achieve, it is democratize access to healthcare and okay. fill in the current gaps in delivery, which stem from the fact that we don't have enough doctors. Globally, I think we're missing 4.3 million. So okay. it's virtually impossible for everyone to, to get access to healthcare when mm. they need it. So what is the gap that we can fill in with machine learning and pneumonia being the first problem that really fascinated me. And back then, when you when you came back from your field work in India and you were getting back into your PhD or starting the, the PhD with this kind of, this solving this problem in mind, how did you kind of envisage that it would be solved? Because machine learning and AI is kind of the terms that get thrown around quite a bit, you know, obviously. But how did you envisage that that would be kind of I guess implemented did you did you have a vision or was it very much an open book and you wanted to explore different avenues yeah I guess that was a kind of generation one of my journey or volume one of my journey so at the time I was very focused on technically what's possible what's feasible I guess that's what you get to explore in academia and in um, kind of research and innovation um, volume two then took me into entrepreneurship um, and kind of thinking much larger than, than the specific disease um, and focusing on how can we realistically structure new workforce mod models around uh, these types of technologies and what do the technologies need to look like to really augment existing uh, kind of workforce models that um, we have either in social care or in healthcare mm. um, to really power a, a kind of a more precise and early detection of conditions. Okay. And so was that the kind of start of your transition, as you said, from um, academia to entrepreneurship? So what motivated you to move? Because a lot of, I have a question on my show script, which is what, you know, lots of people just stay in academia. I mean, that's quite a common 
pathway. So was there an epiphany or was it just a natural progression for you to want to look into doing this entrepreneurially or what, what happened? Yeah, I think this one is more of a byproduct of kind of personality. Um, for me, you know, it was intellectually very interesting doing the research and publishing papers on it. But the thing that matters to me specifically is, does it make a difference to anyone's life today, right. immediately, <laughs> as soon as possible? Um, and um, and equally, not to discredit, I think it's equally very important for people to stay in academia and continue kind of developing very cutting edge research and uh, changing scientifically what's possible. Um, but my personal motivations were really always revolving around people's lives and kind of how yeah. I can contribute to that immediately. Making a direct impact. Yeah. Okay. And so what did that kind of first steps into entrepreneurship or, you know, taking everything you learned and creating a, a company or an entity is that, was that what became Febris or was that, was there something before Febris? No, that's what became Febris eventually. I mean, it took a while, uh, as you've probably experienced. I'd love to hear your journey into, yeah. into uh, getting a company off the ground. But yeah. specifically, like the, the time when you are transitioning between kind of self-made startup into a funded company uh, is quite tricky. So that, that took for us probably about a year um, before we were able to raise a seed round. Okay. Um, and then that was probably the kind of the, the scrappiest <laughs> inception stage uh, that I can remember a lot of kind of trial and error and learning different ways of communicating to investors. Um, also thinking about how you leverage the tiny amount of funding that you can uh, kind of come by through grants, et cetera, to uh, prototype something and show feasibility, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. before you can attract more sizable um, funds to to actually grow what you're imagining and dreaming of yeah and so when you was was um were you always was fibrous always in the remote monitoring and diagnosis space from the beginning was that always the vision and how sort of true has it remained to that to that vision I would say we're not actually um, I don't describe us as a remote monitoring um, platform or solution. Uh, we can facilitate remote monitoring activities, uh, but fundamentally what we set out to do and are focused on doing is unlocking the early detection or the early examination that then leads to early detection in a community setting, which is very different from kind of the regular measurement of certain parameters other uh, clinicians can kind of track remotely. Um, so for us, the fundamentals behind our technology and the um, kind of the mission that we have is what is how can we create the most meaningful first interaction a patient can have with the health system in the community, so that the trajectory they follow from then onwards is one of recovery rather than one from of further complication and exacerbation that eventually leads to hospitalization. Okay, I think we're gonna, I'm sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. I think we're <laughs> gonna have a commercial break now because not just because I can't talk, but because the content on the station is extremely high quality and we have some wonderful commercial partners that support us in doing so. So we'll be back after a short commercial break. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. 
good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. The station that makes you feel good. Okay, hi, welcome back. Um, sorry about that interruption, but we're right back with Alina from Fibris. So before the break, we were just talking about how in you're not you would define yourselves as an early detection company or a company that aids in early detection and ensuring that the first um, contact that someone in the community has with a clinician or, or a service is meaningful. And so why is, um, just for the benefit of everyone listening, why do you believe that early detection is so critical? So if you if you look at um, kind of the current state of affairs across the globe, I mean, health systems obviously vary and some are dealing better than others uh, with the burdens they face, but universally we have, we face one um kind of universal problem which is we're missing 4.3 million doctors what that then leads to is a lot of downstream costs so if you can't see your gp early enough before your pneumonia thinking back the example we discussed a few minutes ago before your pneumonia is mild if you can't see your gp on time that leads to an exacerbation that then inevitably ends up uh, resulting in a hospitalization and the difference in treating that early condition in the community versus the hospital is one of cost, obviously. It's yeah. much more expensive uh, if you're doing in a hospital setting. Uh, but for certain uh, patient groups, it's also one in a, in a different, it's also a difference in survival uh, chances. So specifically the young children under five and also the elderly people. Um, so for, for, for those reasons, it's, incredibly important as we should have managed in the community or in primary care that okay. if if undetected early enough lead to a lot of hospitalization so pneumonia falls in that bracket but it's also COPD asthma heart failure etc cetera, etc cetera. okay and um how does Fibris help with that you know in detail so for us the, the problem that's uh kind of being a fascination and what we focused on is what would it take to enable a non-clinical worker such as a carer working in a care home to be able to conduct a clinical grade examination in the community mm. and triage the concern that that patient might be having into the most appropriate clinical uh, channel right and the reason why that's important is kind of twofold. One is we're able to task shift a lot of burden away from primary care. So if the carer, hypothetically, if the carer was able to do as good of a job 
as a GP doing all the doing the examination in their practice, then yeah. you can save the GP half of the 10 minutes that they have to spend with the patient. Yeah. And also very importantly, you can allow them to focus on what they do best, which is caring for the patient and making the very kind of high, uh, high risk decisions, which is diagnosis and treatment. treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the other benefit is if they then have the decision, if the carer has the decision support on what is the most appropriate channel for this patient, you avoid unnecessary calls to 999-111 or even the GP that can be dealt with um, through a kind of lower level, less expensive channel. Okay. Sorry, go on. I interrupted you. Um, so that, that's effectively uh, kind of what we focused on. And what we do is we've, we've developed a platform which includes a mobile application as well as a number of off-the-shelf sensors, which we um, kind of sell and ship as a kit. And uh, the care home can use them to conduct regular checkups uh, or examinations with their, with their residents, which then leads to a recommendation of uh, how they should deal with the, with the condition or the, the problem they've identified. We then help GPs manage these populations uh, remotely and really focus on the cases that need their attention um, and um, can kind of direct their, their attention and focus towards uh, the specific problems that these people are experiencing. Okay. Um, I think it's fascinating. Obviously, I mean, look, what we do at PocDoc is very, it's not the same, but it's in the same, we have the same passion and the same, you know, mm. the same sort of view about care in the community and moving stuff out of GP surgeries, out, you know, out of a clinical setting, early detection, early diagnosis. So, you know, this is definitely in, in our ballpark for sure. Um, but I think what's, what's really interesting, or one of the things I'd like to get under the skin of is what was happening before Fibris to do this? If, if anything, like what, what was the view about what, you're, what you did, what, you, what, what, what you're doing? Yeah, it's a very good question. So there are a couple of kind of generations of, uh, of solutions that have already been attempted in this space. Um, there is kind of, well, the, the very basic uh, that it still remains uh, kind of the status quo in most settings most settings is uh, there's nothing. So the carer would see the elderly person being unwell and they would phone the GP and hundreds of hundreds of GPs would tell us uh, about the dreaded call of Mrs. Jones is not well today. Can you give me some direction of what she's experiencing? Mm. The carer would say, I can't really tell you. She just looks pale and she's really tired. Um, So very kind of, non-indicative markers of disease that are obviously insufficient to make a diagnosis. And that's uh, obviously stressful in the best of times. It's even more stressful during the pandemic when obviously the the thing that people are worrying the most about is, is it COVID or is it also an exacerbation of yet another condition that I can't manage because I can't physically Mm -hmm. go and see this person. Yeah. So that, that's, uh, was and um, in a lot of st- settings still is the uh, kind of the status quo. There is then a generation of paper-based systems uh, where you know people would be given some tools to measure some basic parameters like blo- blood pressure or temperature and then record what they've measured on paper and try and communicate that over the phone. Okay. Um, and then there is also a generation of um, what I would call digitization of that process. Um, so okay. software that's able to, rather than typing on a piece of paper, 
um, have you type it into a box on. Okay, uh, like a data device. collection app. Exactly, like a data collection app, uh, which is definitely moving us kind of further away from there being absolutely nothing in these settings. Mm. Um, but the challenge that this has consistently seen and um, also the conversation we should be having very honestly about uh, as a community about uh, remote monitoring is um, there have been barriers to scale that are infrastructural, but also there have been barriers to scale because of the reliability of, of a lot of these technologies. Okay. Um, some, someone being able to, uh, you know, take a measurement and then type in a number very often leads to um, a lot of error, which is human perfectly error. natural. Exactly. Yep. Human error. It happens even in hospitals. I mean, if you look at the literature, a nurse um, in A&E is between 7 and 14% or rather uh, carries 7 to 14% error in the collection of vital signs. This okay. is obviously a highly trained professional. If we can't expect carers or patients themselves to be any anywhere more accurate than that in, yep. in a community setting. So for us, we, we kind of see ourselves as, as students of all that history. And uh, what we have focused on is how, how can we design an AI guided capture system that mitigates that error and eliminates um, basically the the fear and disgruntlement that the, the clinical community feels when they're bombarded with all of this unreliable data. Yeah. And so the 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 issue that one of the issues you're solving, which I think I think I completely agree with, is the risk of human error in collecting results, you know, whether they're a trained professional, whether they're not a trained professional. Um, you know, but if they're not a trained professional or clinical professional, then it's even more important, particularly if they're under stress or it's a, a complicated situation. Um, and so why did you kind of land on AI to, to solve that? Or, or how have you, how have you kind of, how, how does Fibris solve that issue? So we actually worked with partners on a uh, kind of large scale, robust evaluation of uh, what is the return on investment that we can expect from various remote monitoring setups. Um, and kind of sliding a scale between totally manual uh, kind of through the connected devices. And then if we had various levels of decision support that minimize the human error, as you say. Mm. And what we saw is that to cross the chasm between negative return on investment and positive return on investment, mm. we need at the very, very minimum have um, connected devices so okay. that we eliminate the need for or rather eliminate the risk from transcription errors Make but sense. also start diluting um, a lot of manual process like respiratory rate for, for example okay. one of the most important vital signs um, that's still to date classically manually counted mm. uh, where ideally a trained professional would watch the the, the person's chest for um, multiple times within 60 seconds and count how, how many times that happens. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that leads to a lot of error that then gets extrapolated into false diagnosis. Um, so for us, it was simply impossible to address this multitude of challenges uh, that emerge when you have complex technologies in community settings, mm. unless you can have AI compensating for various levels of automation as well as um, decision support. Okay. Cool. And um, how, 
you know, how, how have you sort of gone about, where, where does the issue lie in versus decision support or versus sort of that compensation aspect to it, trying to even out the, you know, variation? Mm. Yeah, maybe just to give a few practical examples, which, by the way, are kind of even more pronounced in, in care homes. Uh, as you're saying, they're very stressful settings, uh, particularly over the last 14 months. Yeah. Um, so what would typically happen is, for example, um, they would have to take a pulse oximeter reading, uh, okay. which for a lot of people sounds trivial. You know, you can buy a pulse oximeter from uh, the pharmacy and put it on your finger and it will give you two numbers. The problem is, so first of all, <laughs> a lot of the pulse oximeters you can buy are not medical devices, so shouldn't be trusted oh, to make diagnostic decisions. They're not. They might be oh. CE marked electronically, meaning they're oh. safe for use. Doesn't mean they're CE marked as a medical device. Oh, and your doctors. How can a pulse oximeter not be a medical device? Well, the same way Fitbit <laughs> can give you a heart rate. <laughs> okay. It's not actually meant for diagnosis, but for wellness interpretation. Yeah, do you know what though? Like, I don't buy a Fitbit to measure my heart rate, but I do buy a Polyxipiter to measure my heart rate. You know, yeah. that's, that strikes me as a bit of a loophole there. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's definitely that. Um, so, but let's, let's assume that we bought a Polyxipiter uh, that is a diagnostic device and you can use it. Yeah. Um, then a number of challenges emerge. So you're working with um, a population group uh, that, for example, often will have dementia. It will get really stressed about why are you putting this thing on my finger now, mm -hmm. uh, which would introduce a lot of motion. That motion leads to pollution of the sensor uh, or introduces noise into the sensor, uh, which could still generate a number, but that number is false. Okay. The care obviously doesn't have the clinical judgment to execute uh, to know is this a realistic number that's perfectly yeah. normal for this type of patient or not. Another thing that would happen is elderly people often have poor circulation, so their hands will be cold. If you're in a clinical setting like a hospital, the clinician would obviously know to rub their hands together so that they warm up and increase yeah. the circulation. Again, the carer obviously wouldn't know to, uh, to always think about these uh, externalities. Mm. Um, and there is a whole number of other things uh, that come into play. Um, so what, what we do with our technology is we're able to profile artifacts within the signals that we capture from, okay. from these sensors and say, this is, let's say, this is, you're putting the digital stethoscope in the wrong place uh, because okay. I can't hear any breathing. Or the pulse oximeter indicates that this person has really poor circulation, so please advise them to rub their hands together. Okay. Et cetera, et cetera. So in real time, we're able to basically correct behavior to make right. sure that by the time we've conducted the checkup, by, by the end of the 10 minutes, we have reliable data that then when passed on to a clinician, gives them the confidence that whatever they're seeing is what they would have measured right. because, and can make diagnostic decisions on. Because without that feedback process, you risk just collecting junk data, which will either lead to no diagnosis and a frustrated GP or the wrong diagnosis, whichever way. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And this is, this is exactly uh, what I meant when I was talking about negative return on investment. Right. If you're passing on bad data onto a clinician, at best, you're wasting their time. At worst, you're introducing clinical risk into the mm. process that then leads to further exacerbations mm -hmm. and further burden for the health system. Yeah. And in combination 
this amounts to much more money wasted than saved uh, from putting these technologies in community settings. Yeah, no, I think that that makes that makes total sense. And so, could you walk walk us through? I, I don't know from a carer's perspective, or who is the main user of your technology? A carer? It's a carer. Yeah. Okay. yeah so what do they do? They get the box and then what happens, so to speak? I mean, I'm being a bit basic, but... Yeah, yeah. So they get the box um, and it's plug and play. So they'll find a phone that has a preloaded Fibrous application as well as a number of sensors. Okay. Um, we'll conduct uh, training with them. So we have digital training that they can use themselves, but we also are quite invested in kind of change management. So we offer um, support and a consultation that kind of talks them through when should I be doing the checkups, et cetera, et cetera, and validates that they're well, well trained in, in conducting them. Mm-hmm. Um, so once they've been through the training, what they do is um, they will start the checkup with our mobile app. It would um, first very much resemble what happens when you go to the GP, where they ask you a series of questions okay. to identify what are kind of the, the most likely directions uh, that this, this situation is going into. Um, And then on that basis, we would decide uh, what types of measurements we need to capture next. Okay. Um, So to give you an example, if you you report a respiratory symptom at the start, let's say a cough or um, loss of smell and taste, which is indicative of COVID, as we all know, um, then we would activate a more specialist device um, like the digital stethoscope. Okay. Um, So then in the second stage of, of the checkup or the examination, the carer will go through step-by-step taking these various measurements. Um, okay. And at each stage, as we discussed, they'll receive real-time feedback uh, on the quality of the signal that they've, they've captured. Okay. And so, so go on. at the end of the 10 minutes, uh, they have kind of a structured summary of everything they've recorded, the risks that have been identified um, mm-hmm. across all the measurements and the self-reported symptoms, and an overall evaluation of or should you be uh, passing this on to? Is it the GP or should you be phoning 999 straight away if it's a, right. a very urgent case? And what are what's the full range of sensors that are included in the Fibris, the Fibris service? So at the moment, we have all the conventional things uh, that you would uh, use in a kind of generalist uh, exam, so a thermometer, blood pressure cuff. Um, we also have a pulse oximeter and a digital stethoscope that feed into the more respiratory um, examinations, and we're constantly on board in new sensors um, to, to provide a kind of a one-stop shop for um, an examination. Okay, and the, the app itself effectively, after going through the triage process, the symptom checker, it will tell the carer what devices to use. It will guide them through that. Exactly, yeah. Okay, great. Well, we have to, we have to do another commercial break now but we'll be back in a couple of minutes just to continue on our chat because i think this is absolutely fascinating so i've got a whole bunch more questions uk health radio the station that makes you feel good galar light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe from the sun and stars now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com. 
or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shield like masks are top mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Okay, hi, we're back. So, carrying on from what we were just talking about, I know that Fibris, you mentioned it a couple of times, Fibris obviously has had a pretty, um, what's the word, busy 12 to 13 months previously. And so, um, at what point did you realise when the pandemic was starting that there were kind of major changes for your business sort of underway or under, you know, at what point did you start thinking, okay, some, this isn't, this isn't just business as usual. Mm, It's a very good question. So before the pandemic, we were mostly working in living care, um, private living care. Okay where you have, uh, you know, patients, they have very advanced needs and they have a carer living with them 24-7. So there we were basically um, helping them identify exacerbations early on um, so that they can prevent a kind of step change um, into the person's condition. Hmm. We also had uh, large-scale deployments in India, um, specifically working with uh, children. Um, And there we were getting to a stage of, uh, really thinking, you know, how how do we slot this technology into community delivery in a way that almost creates a primary care um, model that doesn't exist um, in okay. a lot of low resource uh, communities? And what happened, uh, as we all well remember, uh, with the first lockdown is all conventional healthcare uh, delivery, particularly in primary care ceased to exist Um, so we had to think about new models that hopefully uphold the same kind of standards of of quality quality Mm. of care um, that we aspire to especially in the UK Um, and we were very fortunate to win uh, Tech Force 19 which is a competition that NHSX set up uh, with partners to really identify innovation that can bridge that gap uh, particularly in kind of high-risk communities uh, that, are, that were most affected by the pandemic. Um, so for us, that was kind of the inflection point. Uh, and that's the thing that accelerated our work in deployments across care homes. We were also very fortunate to have uh, exceptional partners, uh, Care City and um, the whole uh, team of BHRCCG. They were very kind of proactively thinking about what is the level of transformation that we need to deliver in these mm. communities uh, to keep uh, the, the kind of the service of healthcare um, that we are committed to, but also moving forward uh, to have a scalable model of, of um, delivery. Okay. And what was it the, were you being asked to deliver Fibris to new groups or were you being asked to develop or adapt Fibris to do certain things that it hadn't really done before or you hadn't done before or a bit of both? A bit of both. I think anyone working in this space, you, you probably uh, say the same. 
knows that um, you, you have kind of a certain level of product uh, that you know meets the market where it is today, uh, but, but particularly during a transformational time like what we experienced over the last 14 minutes, uh, 14 months, sorry, the market was constantly evolving. Um, so true. the needs that we kept kind of seeing emerge from the community uh, were really transformational for us as a company as well. Um, and mm. we were trying to keep responding to them and evolving the product alongside the health system. Mm. And before the pandemic, I know you mentioned it, touched on it. Um, you mentioned that there were some obstacles to scaling in this space and things like that. What were those obstacles and did they change as a result of the pandemic? You know, have they been removed or have they just been replaced by something else? Or like what, you know, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit too early to say, um, but what what we've seen is, so prior to the pandemic, we, we had really interesting conversations and people were always very receptive to what we do as the future of healthcare, mm-hmm. but we were always met with, is this really, really urgent right now? <laughs> or can we postpone it for the next couple of years? Right. And what the pandemic did specifically for our space is that it accelerated the realization that we can't keep postponing it. It was urgent before and, you know, the avoidable deaths numbers that I was quoting and the staggering amount of money that we're losing uh, due to the lack of uh, kind of time, the detection of disease was still there. Mm. They were kind of hidden. (laughs) It wasn't as obvious as the pandemic made it. Um, So, yeah, what, what that's done for us is um, the argument is much easier. We no okay. longer have to kind of rationalize why do we need to have early detection of conditions in community settings and why is the future of medicine virtual? Uh, that That's kind of a given these days. Yeah, that's um, kind of, I think that, that discussion's been sort of... Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, I think it's, it's been wrapped. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm curious whether you've had the same experience because obviously... Uh, different companies have kind of experienced um, yeah I, I yeah i think so i mean we, we you know we've obviously like you we have a range of sort of clinical partners and things like that and they consistently say that overall they've seen more change in the last year than they have done in the last you know five to ten maybe maybe even ten or ten or longer as far as digital mm. health is concerned i think the um <clears throat> the 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 it, we've been impacted in a way in the sense that particularly within you know primary care in community care the 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 where we focus for example in our product with cardiovascular disease um is really on the screening risk assessment and mm. things <clears throat> we're actually pushing to now that those are the things that have been punted as in they weren't important enough to do and now mm. they're causing huge backlogs and huge follow-on mm. so we're part of the kind of you know i don't know vanguard of trying to say well look hold up a second they definitely have to come back and if you have a remote smartphone app based solution to run the test run the assessment in real time upload the information to the gp primary care service provide feedback in real time which is sort of similar to what where you guys come at it that that makes these things way more cost efficient way more effective Mm. and it means that you can actually do them because if you don't do them like you say all you're doing is storing up downstream cost which you know that might be what you want to do right now but (laughs) at some point you have to pay the tab and you know so that's sort of where 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 we've where we've sort of found it, and it, I, I think the the what's been really interesting is talking to to virtual GPs or telehealth providers, mm. 
particularly some of the ones we had on the show. So we've had Push Doctor on the show, Dr. Care Anywhere, you know, a few other people in that space. And they're all, they're, there's, a, there's a point where at some point you have to touch the patient, right? Yeah. So, you know, that near patient or at patient, whether it's diagnostic or monitoring or whatever it happens to be, at some point you have to, you have to be able to blend the virtual or the digital and mm. interact with the patient. And that's sort of where we are from a purely blood-based diagnostic perspective. And you're coming at it from a different, you know, the range of markers that you're monitoring. But I think that that's really going to be a critical point for some of the virtual telehealth people as they move mm. onwards. Because a lot of them at the moment, really, they can cope with the first appointment, you know, virtually. Yeah. And yeah. then they then ha- they then really at the moment have to send people to a secondary care service, which is fine but you're then back in the same process that you were in before. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I think that space is really interesting about, about things that started off completely virtually, but then we're we're now things had to be virtual for 13 months. Got it. Fine. But now we have to get back to a point, but it has to be a blend. Mm -hmm. And I think stuff that manages that, that blend, I think is really interesting because if it's just, call it analog or, you know, at patient, then yeah. that's not really scalable. But if it's just virtual, then that has limitations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Cool. Look at that. We're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. um, that's good. So um, w- w- I know you touched on it a little bit, but one of the things that I found really interesting from our pre-show production call, which was around, you know, because sometimes people, t- I know you, you're not in remote monitoring, but t- t- this sort of space of... Um, using digital health in a near patient manner to gather biomarker data to you know gather information to provide to somebody to make a diagnosis to get someone on a treatment path what you were talking about before is there are low there is the unknown risk that or risks that are associated with that so i could you explain a bit more about that because i know that people talk about this Oh, you know, like you said, just get a pulse oximeter and measure your pulse and send it into your GP. And like, why don't we do that? So why can't you do that? Or why shouldn't you do that? What are the risks in this area that people don't realize? Yeah, I mean, that that conversation is very kind of closely coupled with um, the one around accuracy and reliability that we, we were having um, a bit early in the conversation where, hmm. you know, what it, what is the risk of a clinician making a decision of the wrong set of information, um, which inevitably could happen if, as we said, if you have a sensor into the hands of a not so well-trained or not clinically trained user. Um, So, you know, this could take various kind of shapes and forms. It could be um, delay in diagnosis, which then leads to exacerbations um, and eventually kind of a much more expensive and complicated ways of treating people. And I gave an example with pneumonia earlier. Yeah. Um, but um, it could also be kind of more um, recurrent issues uh, that have to do with treatment management of chronic conditions like the space you guys are in uh, with, let's say, cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Like the importance of um, the primary care physician having extremely reliable data that they then use to personalize treatment um, at the back of um, is is really fundamental. Yeah. Uh, um, and 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 that's the conversation that we really should be having right now. It's exactly 
what you're saying, like granted over the last 14 months, we had to be very reactive and we had to digitize and virtualize uh, the bare bones of healthcare as much as possible to get through the crisis. Uh, but what is this blended model that allows us to preserve as much as as much of the um, kind of precision of healthcare mm. that clinicians are capable of um, and merge that with um, kind of the scalability of technology. Yeah, I completely agree. I think to the point around the risks, you know, I think sometimes people don't necessarily realize that, like for example, if you, you know, use your, your digital stethoscope wrongly, for example, if you apply it wrongly, that, that, that could be the single best piece of kit in the world bar none but if it's put on the person wrong it's effectively useless so you know and I I think that there's definitely you know there's definitely a tendency to kind of like I don't know obsess about how good the device is and Mm -hmm. just assume that someone can use it and will use it consistently in the right way when actually as you well as you know and that's the reason why you've developed your AI platform to, to to manage that that just isn't just fundamentally isn't the case um, you know, I think yeah. one of the, it's not specifically a digital issue, but, you know, the, the COVID-19 um, antigen rapid tests that are CE marked for use in a professional setting, but drop and the, you know, in a, in a clinical, highly regulated setting have a certain level of accuracy, but the, the accuracy level, if you do it on yourself, or if you, if, if the healthcare professional doesn't do it properly, it drops to, I mean, mm-hmm. effectively useless as a diagnostic tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, you could you could simplify these examples for yourself to to kind of realize how trivial it is. It, it's almost like assuming that you know you can best you can make the best scalpel possible, but that's not going to make me a surgeon. No, right? Yeah, no, exactly. No, it's <laughs> you could over invest into the scalpel as much as you want, but it's not going to compensate for the fact that I don't have the skill set to be conducting a surgical procedure. I think that's a great example. And yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to be the one using the scalpel. <laughs> that's not going to go very well. So um, how, how do you see, what, what's next for Febris in the last, in the next 20, 12, 18 months? What's, what's on the docket? Yeah, we have many exciting projects we are working on at the moment. I mean, the care homes and just the elderly patient group in general um, remain a strong focus of ours. Um, a few other things we're looking at at the moment is really focusing on workforce models, emerging workforce workforce models. And that's um, really interesting to see how that plays out in the UK, but also we're seeing a few very interesting examples from the US uh, that we're currently figuring out how we tap into, um, especially in, in kind of the bracket of um, healthcare visitors. Um, okay. So people that act as an extension of primary care in particular, who are equipped with um, the tools and technology to um, come into your home, conduct an examination, save the GP a lot of time Mm. uh, in having to do that themselves or in you having to visit the the GP practice and overload them, uh, which Mm. currently we can't possibly afford to do. Yeah. Um, So that's definitely a a big area of focus uh, for us. Mm -hmm. Um, We are also working on... um, kind of continuing to evolve uh, our R&D efforts in the uh, pediatric space. As I mentioned okay. before, historically, we've worked um, extensively on this um, in India. Over the last year, there has been a lot of kind of stop and restart there as yeah. a result of the various uh, lockdowns they've experienced. Um, but we're still strongly committed to the pediatric space, and we hope to bring that to the UK as well okay. over the next few months. 
Um, and fundamentally, what we are kind of growing up to be um, is a workforce solution for delivery of early diagnosis uh, that's most appropriate for uh, the super utilizers of, of healthcare. So that's the top 5% of patients that cost 50% of the budgets. Right. Um, and typically that's elderly people and, and young children. Okay. Is it really young children as well as some of the, the, the super users or utilizers? Specifically like young children with very complex needs. Um, so the premature neonates, for example, um, okay. that they have to go in and out of hospital quite frequently. Okay, and um, we, um, a few weeks, actually near the start of when we started doing the show, we had um, Adam Hunter from Flow on Digital Pharmacy. Mm. We had a really interesting conversation with him about how he saw the evolution of pharmacies, particularly community pharmacies. And is that, this, the, the, there's, I think there's a role for community pharmacies to deliver more assessment-based near patient yeah. sort of yeah. work. Is that something that you guys have thought about at all out of interest? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, we, we see this and, and that's why I keep uh, saying that we see ourselves as a workforce enablement tool because we see a network of non-clinical professionals that we can activate in various clinical situations to mm. absorb a lot of the burden from primary care. And that could be pharmacists, exactly as you're saying. In fact, they can, they can unlock even more uh, kind of actionable patient pathways than a carer could, for example. Yeah. Uh, but it's the social care workforce is these new emerging models of healthcare visitors. The combination of those, from our perspective, is it's the future of healthcare delivery in a country and in a world that's massively under-resourced when it comes to doctors and nurses. Well, I think that that is a great statement to end the show on. You know, I think that that's a good one just to say thank nice. you very much for coming on the show. It's thank almost you like very we much planned, for having it's almost me. like we planned that. That's <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Elena, for coming on the show. Lovely to speak to you. Yeah, and thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll come back next week with another show. So, yeah, thank you very much, everyone.